Good morning. How are you? Wipe the sleep out of your eyes. Straighten up your jammies. I would say it's good to see you, but I can't see you. We're going to be in James chapter 1, so you can get your Bibles out, open to James chapter 1. We're going to start a new series through the book of James called Christianity That Walks. Uh, By the way, in case you uh, stole a pew Bible, that's page 1386 on the pew Bible in front of you. Yes. So I know this is uh, sort of a new and different season for us. And believe me, uh, it's been a, a challenge in every respect to adjust to the reality of us not being together and me not being able to see you. And, uh, you know, it makes you wonder a lot of things. I, uh, I wrote down a list of some of the things I'm wondering about. I'm wondering if Chuck Lopez is going to say that's a good word in his living room. I'm wondering if Happy's still going to amen everything I say, whether it's good or bad. I'm wondering if you took my advice and sang some praise songs before this and realized for the first time how bad you really sing. I'm wondering if that certain person is going to fall asleep even though they're not in the sanctuary. I'm wondering if that other certain person is going to do the usual thing and get up in the middle of the sermon and have to take a bathroom break. I wonder if when I get to the invitation, some of you are going to rush out of your house just like you do the sanctuary. I wonder if Wade's still going to be the first one to the altar. I wonder how many of you are watching in your pajamas. You know, when you speak in front of a group, you're supposed to picture them in different ways. Well, I'm not picturing you that way. I wonder how many of you still brought snacks to Sunday school. I wonder how many of you are coming in five or ten minutes late. So you didn't even hear what I just said. (laughs) I wonder how many of you saved your spot on the couch. And finally, I wonder if Dale Clark greeted Rachel at the door. This morning. <laughs> oh. See all the little things that you miss if we're not together. All right, let's pray and then we're going to begin in James chapter 1 and see what God has to say for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. It's not the way that we wish it was. We're not together, Lord, but as we're in this season, that has not caught you off guard or by surprise. Lord, we're grateful that you've made a way for us to be together in this way. And Lord, I pray that your word would do its perfect work in our lives as I know it can. And God, I thank you for the time that you've given me in the book of James. And I pray that this morning you will use 
the words of my mouth, empowered by the Spirit within me to speak to your people. And God, that you'd give ears to hear and hearts willing to receive that that which you desire to be accomplished this morning would be. That nothing that we would do or no posture of our heart that we bring would would suppress or be offensive to the work the Spirit wants to do, but we'd be open this morning and expectant, Lord, that you might be glorified in what's said and done here. So thank you again for this time. It's all for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1. The book of James begins, James, a bondservant of God, And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. All right, let's stop there. Now, who is this? Who is this that's speaking? There's a lot of people named James in the Bible, and we need to clarify. This is not James the disciple, not James the son of Zebedee. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is a man who lived in the same house as the Lord Jesus. He grew up with him. He sat at the dinner table with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, the Bible says, When he had come to his own country, he taught them in the synagogues so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, is his mother not Mary? And his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So we see that Jesus had a family. That may be shocking information to some people. You may not realize that Jesus had brothers and he had sisters. And James was one of his half-brothers. And when you think about how difficult it must have been to be the younger brother of Jesus, I mean, how would you feel if you grew up and the only perfect person who ever lived was your older brother? That would have been challenging. And it certainly was challenging for Jesus' family. They were very reluctant. At first, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, we see in Mark chapter 3, then the multitude came together so that they could not as much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. When Jesus started teaching and crowds started following him everywhere he went, his own family was freaked out by that. They didn't know how to handle that, how to respond to that. In John chapter 7, verse 5, the scripture says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. You know, the the rejection of Jesus' uh, family was a, uh, a... It's a way for us to really understand the humanity of Jesus. It's a way for us to understand a lot about James, this person who the Holy Spirit spoke through and gave us the book of James. I want you to consider that There was a lot of difficult moments. For example, in Jesus' greatest moment of need, when he hung upon the cross, the only family member present there was his mother Mary. No one else from his family was there in his greatest moment of need. 
So what happened? How did James go from thinking Jesus was out of his mind or not having anything to do with him when he was crucified, thinking that all of this that was going on was something crazy or maybe that he was demon-possessed? How did we transition from that to now you're the author of a book of the New Testament? Well, here's what happened. What happened was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what the Apostle Paul describes. For I delivered to you, first of all, which, was, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present day, but some have fallen asleep. And then notice what happens. And after that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Jesus, after his resurrection, went straight to James. And it was this meeting with the resurrected Jesus that transformed his life. Can you imagine that moment when here James is uh, aware that his brother is dead and suddenly his brother now is alive and standing before him and it's in that moment realizing that his brother that was dead and is now alive is exactly who he claims to be he is exactly who he says that he is and so from there James was a transformed person he was a completely different person it was James who was there in the upper room in the book of Acts when they were waiting on the Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost. It was James who presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Think about that. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. But who was the presiding spiritual leader over that first council? James. Jesus' half-brother. If you read Jewish history about James, uh, the you'll find that his nickname was James the Just. There's all sorts of stories and historical uh, narratives about how James was so a man so devoted to prayer that he had knees like a camel. But here's what was, it was so remarkable to me about this whole process. The whole thing that this is Jesus' half-brother who's saying this. It's the way he introduces himself, the, the humility that comes across in the very beginning of this book. He says, look at what he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about that from a Jewish perspective. You grew up, you were born in a Jewish family. You grew up Jewish. And now, you begin your letter by saying, you are a bondservant to God and your half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing up next to Jesus, spending his childhood next to Jesus in his father's carpentry shop. To say that he's a bondservant is to say that my brother bought my freedom. With his own blood. 
that he's exactly who he said he was. That the life that he lived on earth, which I didn't understand at the time, there were so many things that happened that at the time I didn't realize the significance of. But all of that was done according to God's plan and for an exact purpose. And on my behalf, the death that he died, the one I didn't even attend, purchased for me total forgiveness, eternal life, and every blessing that I'll ever enjoy. All of that was accomplished by my older brother, Jesus, the Messiah sent from God for the redemption of the world. It's an amazing thing to consider. And so that's who wrote this book. But who did he write it to? And again, fascinating. Look at what the Scripture says. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, what this is is the... The, the Jews, this is God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, although they're not identified and don't function that way in the New Testament, that's who they are. And they're dispersed from where? From Jerusalem, because that's where James is. He was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. But these people that he's writing to are people that have been dispersed because of persecution, which all began with the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. So these are people that a lot of whom, now think about this, who the recipients of this letter, many of these people are people whom James pastored. He knows them well. He loves them. He's been separated from them because of hardship. The fellowship that they once enjoyed together has evaporated because they've been separated by their circumstances. Now, that should sound a little bit familiar to us this morning. And there's some things that you need to relate to about this. In other words, that as we go through this book, you're going to notice most of you are familiar with James. It's one of the most popular books in the New Testament. But what you know about James, if you know anything about James, is that he's not subtle. And he gets right to the point. And it's really the most practical book in many ways in the New Testament. But why? Because this is the way you speak to someone that you know and you love. See, James knows and he loves the recipients of this letter. Because he used to pastor them. And he misses them. And he's concerned about them. And so... You see, when, when, you, when you don't know someone, when you're just getting to know someone, you don't speak really directly and forcefully. But you see, these are people he knows and loves. And you can tell when you read this book that it's, it's ethical and not really doctrinal. The emphasis of the book of James is clearly on application. And it tells us that James has great confidence in the spiritual foundation of the people whom he's talking to. So he can go straight to application. And he has confidence because he taught them much of what they know. And so his concern was that they would live what they know to live as they're dispersed. My goodness, I can relate to this in so many ways in our present situation.
And so what's the first thing that James says? What's the first thing that he addresses with these people that he misses, that he knows, that he loves, that he has confidence in their their doctrinal foundation? Look at verse 2. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You see, James knows something. He knows that that all Christians are going to experience trials and pain and disappointment. He knows that life is difficult, but he knows that life in a dispersion, life that's been disrupted, life where you've been disconnected, is comes with even more difficulties and more challenges. And so his very first concern, the first thing he brings up is, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And here's what we need to know. If you are following along with your listening guide, here's your first blanks. The moment that you decide to follow Jesus is the moment that you expect the trials and tribulations to begin. Now, that's not to say that life is easy, uh, certainly before you follow Jesus. No, life is always difficult. But when you put your faith in Jesus, when you become a, a follower of Jesus, that's when you begin to expect. You know it's coming because there are trials and tribulations that come for those who live faithful to God in a fallen world. So you expect it. You know it. There's no doubt about it. And not only that, James understands that if that's true, we have a tendency to allow trials to distract us or sidetrack our spiritual growth. It's very easy when we've been dispersed, when things are not as they should be, for us to get focused on what's not normal or what the problem is. You see, What we could do is we could spend all of our time focusing on the coronavirus and trying not to catch it and trying to to be careful and then neglect the fact that we need to spiritually grow. We can't neglect our spiritual growth. And this is James' concern for those in dispersion. Now, these trials that come, let's make some clarification. Because we're talking about trials that come to those who have a doctrinal foundation. Those who are, uh, they're they're people who love God and who follow God. But you know, oftentimes we create our own problems and trials. And we look for someone to blame when we do that. Because we, we make foolish mistakes or we do things that we ought not do. It reminds me of the story of a, an Irishman, a Mexican, and a redneck. And they all worked together doing construction. They were building a tall building. And at lunchtime, the Irishman opened his lunch and pulled out a corned beef sandwich and said, oh no, not corned beef again. If I get corned beef one more time, I'm going to jump off this building. And then the Mexican opened his lunch and pulled out a burrito and he said oh no not a burrito if I have to eat a burrito one more time I'm going to jump off this building so the redneck opened his lunchbox and pulled out a bologna sandwich and he said 
not baloney. If I have to eat baloney one more time, I'm going to jump off this building. So the next day, the Irishman opens his lunchbox, sees corned beef, and jumps. The Mexican opens his lunch, sees a burrito, and he jumps too. The redneck opens his lunch and sees a bologna sandwich, and he jumps as well. So at the funeral, the Irishman's wife is weeping, and she says, you know, if only I had known that he didn't like corned beef that much, I never would have gave it to him again. The Mexican's wife said, I could have given him tacos if I had only known that he didn't want burritos anymore. And then everyone turns and they stare at the redneck's wife. And she says, hey, don't look at me, she says. He made his own lunch every day. You see, sometimes we make our own problems. James is talking about the fact that life is hard, period. It's hard. There are things like cancer, divorce, loss of loved ones. You know, infertility, having a child with special needs, family challenges, financial challenges, vocational challenges. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. But it's especially hard for those who follow Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about how, as many of you know, I, I grew up in a in an unbelieving family. I grew up as an atheist. All my life I was taught that there is no such thing as God. And my family is still unbelieving. But I married a preacher's kid. And so my wife's family is, is uh, a, a family of people who love Jesus and who have grown up their whole lives in church. And when you look at the two families, you notice a lot of Differences, obviously, but here's one thing that oftentimes people would miss. Is that, you know, there hasn't been any loss in my family. Everyone in my family is relatively healthy and still alive. But, you know, in Lisa's family, several years ago, we, we buried her dad. It was a very difficult time. Just two years ago, her brother passed away from leukemia after battling leukemia for a couple years. You know, and you look at how all the difficulty and loss that has happened in this family that loves Jesus and in this other family that's just basically completely secularized and pagan, things just relatively move along. What I'm saying is, is that this idea that somehow it's going to be easier for those who are Christians is ridiculous. It's not. But here's what James says. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you should expect it. It's going to be difficult. But count it joy? I mean, does he really know about suffering? What is, I mean, how can James say that? Well, here's first of all what he's not saying. He's not saying that we enjoy pain. He's not saying that we enjoy suffering or we somehow enjoy persecution. That's not what it means to count it all joy. There's a huge difference between saying enjoy trials 
and count them as joy. You see, as believers, we do grieve. And we do groan under the weight of the trials that we face. But we're not masochists. We don't, we're, not, we're not celebrating our suffering. James says because of Jesus, we can suffer. And as we suffer, we can be a joyful Christian, a joyful follower of, follower of Jesus at the same time. Now the question is, how? I mean, how, how can we count our suffering and our trials as joy? And maybe even a bigger question would be, why would we even want to? I mean, that just doesn't even sound like something that makes any sort of sense to us. I mean, how, how is that possible? Why would we want to do that? Who would say such a thing? And here's the thing. It's because Christians know something. They know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. Look at verse 2. He says, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Verse 3, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In order to count it as joy, we have to know something. See, joy and trial, joy and suffering, joy and pain, those aren't words that you mix together in any natural order or natural sense. No, no, we need to know something. We need the Bible to inform us of something so that we can then see this in a supernatural way and not in a natural way because there's nothing natural about counting our trials as joy. So here's the first thing I want us to think about. There's a promise in the process. Here's what James wants us to know. There's a promise in the process. God's got a process. You see, what do we know? Well, we know knowing that the testing of your faith. Look at what James is saying here. The testing of your faith. Now that word testing that's a Greek word. It means to refine. It's the refining of your faith. It's like burning the impurities or the dross off of precious metals so that you refine something down to something beautiful. You see, the difficulties that I face as God's child, James would say, they're not to destroy me. They're to refine me. There's a, there's a promise in the process that I'm going through. Think about this. If, if there's a testing of my faith, well, what does it tell me about what I'm going through in my life? What does it tell me about what I'm experiencing? It tells me this. It must be important because only important things are tested. You know, you think about how a, mechanic's, a mechanic doesn't test the brakes on a car that's going to the scrapyard. He tests the brakes on a car that's going to carry people. You see, you only test something that's important, that has meaning, that has purpose. If it's unimportant, you wouldn't test it. 
we're only tested on things that matter. And the fact that we're tested means that it does matter. James is, look, there's an assumption in what he's saying here. That the refining of our faith is going to produce something that's positive. You see, he says, knowing that the testing of our faith produces something. That it's a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen. No exceptions. God will produce something in the lives of his children. And here's what I know about God. He will not produce failure in any of his children. That's not his character and that's not his nature. But here's what is his character and his nature. He, God has a redemptive purpose in every trial that we face. This is what James is telling us. You see, you might say to yourself, well, well, wait a minute, I'm already redeemed. So how is it? Well, there's a redemptive purpose in it. There's a purpose in the testing of your faith in what it's doing. It's refining you, but also how God's going to use that in you in a redemptive nature. He desires to use that in other ways in people around you. You see, it's really easy to say, well, God has a redemptive purpose in the trials in my life. That's, that's easy to say, but it's a totally different thing to live and to believe in the midst of real, deep suffering. And, and what is this promise? I mean, how, how does this promise work? Look at verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Or some of you have the translation that says steadfastness. Well, so what is this promise? The promise is, is that the trials are going to make us stronger. They're going to make us stronger. This, is a, this word, patience or steadfastness, it's one of my favorite words in the Greek New Testament. It means to abide under something that's heavy, to abide under weight. That's what, that's what the word you know, steadfastness or patience means. Now think about what it means to abide under something heavy. You see, you don't accidentally abide under something. You, you have to willfully and intentionally abide under something. Our natural inclination when something heavy comes on us is to what? Get out from under it. But this word is teaching to, to abide under it, to, to remain under it. You know, I ran the Honolulu Marathon in 1985. Now, here's what I didn't do. I didn't just, you know, send in my registration form because... There was no such thing as the internet then, so it's not like I could log in and do it. I didn't just mail in my registration form, show up that morning at the, you know, at the, the day of the marathon and, uh, you know, say, hey, I feel pretty good. I, you know, I got some new shoes and I ate a granola bar. I think I'm going to be all right and just run a marathon. That's not how that works. What happened was I abided under the weight that I was going to run a marathon for months and months and months before. I know it's 
seems hard to believe, but when I was in high school, I can remember that I would just get up and run 13 miles before I went to school. Just but you don't start there. It takes a lot of time and training. And, you know, there's a moment where, you know, you don't, you don't know if you can, you know, run a mile. And then from there you go to two miles. And you have to abide under and abide under. But here's what happens. When you abide under it, what is the result? You get stronger. You build steadfastness. You see, those who follow Jesus, the Messiah, are not, we're not simply supposed to survive. We're supposed to count. We're supposed to matter. We're supposed to, to accomplish things. We're supposed to make a difference in the world. And, and listen, it's not all the same. I understand that. You know, some of you will make a difference in the world through your quiet daily witness, your consistent faithfulness. The gentle life that you lead, faithful to God, that impacts the people that cross your path. And you make a difference in their life, and it's a beautiful thing. And then some people will speak and act in such a way that they're able to uh, stand and reveal the gospel to many people in many different ways. But here's the thing. We're all called to, to make a difference. It's supposed to count either way to accomplish this mission. It's not going to be easy. You're going to need to be stronger. You, you, you can't just show up and say, hey, I'm, here I am, I'm ready. It doesn't work like that. You got to be strong. Because like anything in life that's worthwhile, a faithful life in Christ is going to be challenging and it's going to take strength and steadfastness. So the, we're to rejoice. We're to count the, the trials that come into our life as joy because it's a test that's testing our faith to create in us patience. So we rejoice. Not because the trials have come. Not because the trials aren't difficult. We're not, just, we're not just intellectually convincing ourselves that what we're facing is really not hard. No, no, that's, that's not what it is. We can rejoice because the hardship that we face, we know that it's been sent to us by a loving Father who intends to make us stronger because He wants to help us. He wants to use us. He wants us to be successful in the things that he set out for us to do. See, the, the trial is not for our destruction, but our sanctification. That's what James wants people dispersed to understand. That they're being sanctified. They're being made more like Christ. And to be made more like Christ is only going to come one way, and that's through Hardship. You see, what if I say, what if, what, what if you say this morning, well, I don't want to be stronger. 
I'm fine with how I am right now. What if I, what if I said, you know what? I don't, I, I'm going to run a marathon my own way. I'm not going to run a marathon the way it's set out to be, but I'm going to run a, a marathon. I'm, I'm going to run a 5K and call it a marathon. See, some people say, well, maybe I don't want to be stronger or maybe I'm content with where I am now. Well, listen to me, loved one. God's not. God's not content with where you are now. God's not content with you saying you don't want to be stronger. And here's why. Because it's his reputation and his character that's on the line. Look at Philippians 6, Philippians 1, 6, where the scripture says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, he's not, he, he, it's, his, it's his reputation on the line. He's the one who is, he's the one who is committed to seeing this through. So the day that he saved you was the day that, that he entered into a, a relationship with you whereby he was committed to completing this process. And so he's going to do that. And that's what, that's what we need to receive this morning is that there's a promise in the process and that we're going to face tests, but... It's for a reason, to make us stronger. And we need to be stronger because God has things for us to accomplish in this life that are going to take strength to do. So not only is there a, a promise in the process, but then number two, there's purpose in our pain. Purpose in our pain. Look at verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, when this steadfastness, when this patience, when, when we've abided under something heavy and become stronger, it's going to have its work in us. And in that new strength, we're going to be matured. We're going to... Not be, this isn't speaking of us being morally perfect in this life. That's not what it's speaking of. It means that we're going to be matured. We're going to be more like Jesus. We're going to be prepared for the task at hand. Now, we can't have this conversation, you know, just on some ethereal level some you know in some shallow sense where we say well you know I'm gonna I know the Bible calls me to rejoice in my suffering and I realize that you know God is bringing uh, difficulties into my life in order to strengthen me so that I can accomplish his purposes because here's what I know about life I know that when real genuine, deep heartbreak comes into your life. You're going to need to understand this in a deeper way. 
that when you are suffering, you're hurting, and you don't understand. God, where are you? Where, how, how, can I, I, how can I count it joy when it doesn't make any sense to me, when I don't understand it, when I don't... I mean, it's one thing to say there's a purpose in my pain, but, but how do I wrap my head around that? And there's only one way I know to explain this. And that is to look at the Bible and to see the, the character and the nature of God in Scripture and to understand how he operates and why he does the things that he does. So I want us to look at, at John 11. These verses will come up on the screen. You can follow along. Again, I chose a very familiar passage because I want you to, I want you to see this in a, in a new light this morning. John chapter 11 says, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, and they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus is with his disciples. And Mary and Martha are back in Bethany with their brother, Lazarus. They're all friends with Jesus. He's deathly ill. They send word to Jesus to, because obviously they know that Jesus has the power to heal their brother. And so Jesus then uses this moment as a teaching moment with his disciples. And he tells them, well, it's, it's not a sickness unto death, but it's for the glory of God. Reminds us of when Jesus was questioned about the man born blind. And he was asked, is this because his parents sinned? And Jesus said, no, but for the glory of God, which sort of left everyone Bewildered. Maybe you're still bewildered by that statement. Well, here we have the same thing, but it's for the glory of God. Now look at verse 5. The Bible says, now Jesus, he, he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are people who, who, who were personal friends of Jesus. He knew them. He loved them. So when he heard that he was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where he was. What does that mean? What, what, how, how do I? And I know that many of you are familiar with this and you've, you've, you've heard people try to explain this in all sorts of various ways, but just look at it on face value. Put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha or maybe even Lazarus. Laying there, writhing in pain, but thinking to himself, surely I know my friend Jesus is going to come. And when he does, everything's going to be fine. And he's probably telling his sisters, don't worry, don't worry. Jesus is going to come. I know he is. He's going to come. Everything's going to be okay. But Jesus, on the other hand, is not coming. He, he stays two more days. And then in verse 7, and after this, he, he said to his disciples, now let's go to Judea again. 
Now, Judea is near Bethany, but Judea has not been a place that's been good to Jesus. And the disciples don't exactly want to go there. And so they say in verse 8, they say, Rabbi, well, lately the Jews have sought to stone you. Are you going to go there again? In other words, we really don't want to go there. Maybe we shouldn't do this. And they're always trying to advise Jesus on, hey, you know, uh, in case you forgot, maybe we shouldn't go there. Then verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, again, there's purpose in our pain. That's what we're talking about. And I'm just, I just want you to pause for a second and realize Jesus is showing us that there's purpose in this pain that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are facing. And he's, he's using this as a teaching moment in the lives of his disciples. And he's explaining to them that there's an eternal thing at stake here. And he's talking about light and about darkness and about light being in someone. And then he says in verse 11, these things he said. And after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus, he sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. But his disciples, they say, well, well Lord, if he sleeps, then he will get well. Meaning that, well, then we don't need to go. To Bethany, We don't have to go back to Judea because it's not safe. If he's just asleep, let's just skip the whole thing and do something safe. However, Jesus was speaking of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And so, Jesus says plainly to them, You see, he wants them to understand, just like he wants me and you to understand this morning. He says, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. Which means, listen. You got word that he was sick. And you hesitated for two days. And now... He's dead. And you know that, obviously, because you know everything. But you're telling us that he's dead. And more shocking than that, he goes on to say, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. What? You see, now you're starting to see the challenge of And the importance of realizing the purpose in pain. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. But notice what he says. That you may, what's the word? Believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. There's the first indicator of this purpose. Now you see that you may believe. Now what did we say? That there's going to be a testing and a testing of our faith. And the testing of our faith is going to produce steadfastness or patience. It's going to make us stronger. It's going to prepare us for what's ahead. He said, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because this trial that's happened, 
this death that's occurred, this suffering, this bewilderment, this confusion that you may believe. Now let's go to him. Now, just wait a second. I mean, is it so important to Jesus that he teach this lesson? That he would let someone die in order to teach us? Isn't there another way? Isn't there an easier way? I mean, isn't this a, a little bit drastic? In other words, some of you are in a situation in your life right now and you're thinking, God, this is a little bit drastic. If you wanted to make me stronger, this is not the way to do that. This is making me weaker. This, this, isn't, this chronic illness that I'm, that I'm facing or this, this heartbreak or the, you know, this devastation or whatever, this loss that I face, this, this isn't a good idea, God. What are you doing? Like if you wanted to make a point, this isn't the way to make a point. Is faith that important? And the answer Jesus would give us is, yes, it is. It's that important. You see, faith is the preeminent way to honor God. It is the preeminent way to honor God. You know, many of you spent a month memorizing Hebrews eleven six, and it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. That there's, there's no, apart from faith, no matter what else there is, no matter what other pieces of the puzzle there are, no matter what other activities there are, no matter what other acts of service or love or dedication or devotion or whatever it is, if there's not faith, it's impossible. All bets are off. It's not going to be pleasing to God. You see, we, we were created to glorify God. Well, how do we do that? What glorifies God? What glorifies God is when we trust Him. Faith glorifies God. Apart from faith, you can't please God. Because who chose the purpose for which we were created? The one who created us. So it was God's intention that we would be created to glorify Him. And to glorify Him, it takes faith. And what is faith? Faith is simply trusting in God. It's the preeminent way to honor God. And what Jesus is illustrating in the life of his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha to his disciples right now is that there's no links that he will not go to to accomplish faith in people. It's that important. You see, when, when people see us Endure, abide under the weight of our hurts and our hardships. They, they marvel at that. They, they wonder about that. They, it glorifies our Father in heaven when people see us remaining humble and faithful and prayerful 
before a God who's doing things that we can't fully explain or understand. People are curious about that. They wonder, where does that strength come from? What is it about you that is so different? It's faith. That's what God cares about above, above all things, is faith. You see, it's been so true in my life, and I know it's been true in many of your lives. That when we look back across the span of our life and we realize how God has, has used us since we've come to faith in Him, it becomes obvious to us that there we go. That God can use the injustices done to us to change the world through us. You know what? You know what propels my faith forward? You know what makes me the person that I am today? The hardships and injustices that I've been through in my life. Those are the things that that press me forward. Those are the things that press you forward. But you know why? Because the greatest things you'll ever do are going to be the hardest things you'll ever do. And they're going to be the things that take the most strength. And the way that you're going to become strong is through hardship. That's the only way you're going to become strong. And so God's so devoted to His purpose and His plan that no matter what it takes, He's not going to abandon it. No matter how bewildering it is to us, no matter how confounding it is to the people around us, no matter how many false prophets try to discount it and deceive people into believing that that's not God's plan and that's not God's purpose and that He's never in pain, God's not going to stop being God because it's who He is. Look at verse 20. And so now Martha... As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary was sitting back at the house. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, uh, well, of course. That Jesus, it's your fault. Why didn't you come? You know, I prayed and I asked God to take the pain away. I asked God to fix this situation in my family. I asked God to, to not let this happen. How many times have, have you talked to somebody and you've tried to share your faith with them and they said, you know what, I, I thought about going to church or I used to go to church, but you know, when I was a, a child, my my mom died, and, and I'm not going to follow a God who would let that happen. Or some horrible injustice happened to someone I love or to me, and, and I can't follow a God who would let that happen. And because of pain and because of my lack of understanding about that pain, I'm not going to follow God. I don't get this God. I don't want anything to do with this God. That the reason that that happened is because, God, you didn't show up, because you didn't answer my prayer, because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But notice what she says. 
But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now remember, Jesus has already indicated that this whole situation is about faith. It's about belief. There's a purpose in this pain. And so maybe you're thinking, well, well, why is he picking on Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha? Because here, Martha, clearly she, she has faith. She says, but I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. But let me explain something to you. That, that's, that's a declaration of belief that there is a God and that he's a powerful God. She's declaring what she believes about Jesus, what she believes about God. She's not declaring belief in God in that statement. So what does Jesus do? He says, your brother will rise again. He will rise again. And Martha, because she, she's a good, she's a good Baptist. She grew up, she went to Sunday school. She, she knows the Sunday school answers. And she said, oh, well, I know he will. I know that he's going to rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus is saying, no, listen, you don't understand. There's a purpose to this pain and it's bigger than what you think. It's bigger than what you understand. There's more to this than you, you realize. I'm not, this isn't about you believing that, that God can do anything and that God's all powerful because what good is that belief if when you needed him to do something, he doesn't do it? You see, her brother is dead. Her heart is broken. She's devastated. She's blaming Jesus because her brother's not there. And the fact that you can do everything, that's exactly the position that so many people take that say, I'm not going to follow a God who could have done something about that but chose not to. This is that situation right here. And Jesus is going to speak directly into the fact that she needs to realize this is far bigger than what she has any idea of. So he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, her response is, well, I know that he's going he's to raise up in the resurrection at the end of days. And Jesus said, no, no. I am the resurrection. That's me. I'm the one. He who, what's the word? Believes. Believes. You, you should go back this afternoon. And you should read through John chapter 11 and you should underline or circle every time the word believes in that chapter and you'd be astonished at how many times it comes up. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives 
and believes shall never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Do you? Do you believe this? Clearly, Jesus is, is revealing this purpose. He's saying, hey, I've got something that I need you to understand. I need you to realize that I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm, it's more than I have ability. I am the resurrection. And do you believe this? And look, she says to him, well, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, you're the Son of God who is to come into the world. I believe that. I don't, I, I don't doubt that. Now we're, we're getting to this declaration of, I believe that you're the Christ. I believe that you're who you say you are. Listen, pain It teaches us what pleasure can't teach us. Resiliency only comes through adversity. There's no other way. See, without pain, you would never appreciate what real hope is. Without pain, you would too easily forget your, your need for God. Without pain... You'd neglect your need for salvation, and so would I. You see, it's pain that, that builds in us strength and desperation. It's pain that gives us context so that we're able to, to tell the difference between what is, what is good and right and what is wrong and hurtful and painful. It's pain that gives us the experience to be able to see the difference between what is broken and what is mended and what is and what ought to be. Without pain, there's no context. There's no way to know. There's no fortitude. No, it takes pain. It takes pain. Pain, it heightens our senses and gives us awareness of what's important. What, when people go through deep, dark pain, you know what happens? They realize what really matters in life. They cling to family, to love, to God, to spiritual things, to things that matter. They abandon the, 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 the secular ideologies in their life. They realize the, the frailty and the foolishness of all those things. But apart from pain, you would never do that. See, apart from pain, you would think that money and possessions could make you happy. Apart from pain, you could stay deceived and believe that if, if you gained the acceptance of people or your peers or you achieved what level you're seeking for in your job, that you'll somehow feel complete. You see, the only way that you know that that's not true is because of pain. It's because of pain. If you lived your life completely without pain, you'd never know what truly matters. You'd never know. You see, in Christ, pain doesn't define or defeat you. It drives you. It drives you. You show me a Christian 
who is driven for the things of God, who is driven in their faithfulness, who is driven in their desire to uh, accomplish the will of God in their life. And I'll show you a person who is accustomed to pain. It's the only way. It's the only way. This is what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 11. It's pain. It's a purpose. And understand something. Even in this moment, Mary and Martha, the disciples, the people around, they don't understand. It's not like they're having this aha moment and they're going, oh, now I understand why you allowed my brother to die. Why you stayed two extra days instead of coming to help him. Gee, Jesus, we have heard stories of you healing multitudes, going into towns and healing everyone. We know that you've healed people you weren't even in proximity to. You healed strangers. People ran up to you and said, my servant is ill, and you would just send them home and healed them. Didn't even have to go there. But when your friend is sick and we send word to you and we tell you that he's sick and we need you in that moment, you stay two extra days and he dies. That doesn't make sense to them. They don't have clarity in that. So what does Jesus do? In verse 34, he, he goes to them and he says, well, where have you laid him? And they say, Lord, come and see. And I just want us to pause for a second and realize now, why would someone who fully knows and understands everything that's going on around him weep? It's not like Jesus doesn't know what he's about to do. It's not like Jesus hasn't yet decided that he's going to call Lazarus forth and that he's going to be alive again. He knows that. And yet, so how does he know that in just a few moments, his friend is going to be fully alive and fine, and yet he's weeping. He pauses, and he enters into this moment with the people around him. He feels the weight of their confusion and their sorrow and their brokenness and their, their need, their frustration. And then the, the Jews around him, they say, see, look, look, Look at how he loved him. Look, he, he loved him, but he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. You see, maybe some of you are, have been going through this long, ongoing struggle in your life, this trial in your life, this difficulty. Maybe you've been, been ill or you've lost someone. You went through this long battle and they finally died. And the people that you work with are thinking, well, you know, you go to church all the time and you read your Bible all the time and you talk about Jesus all the time, but he didn't save your husband. He hasn't healed you. So he loved you, but he didn't do anything. So what good is it? What good is it if he loves you, but he doesn't, he doesn't do anything? I mean... Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? There's no purpose in your pain. It's just pain. It's just pain. That's what they're saying. It's just pain. 
Then Jesus, look, he's groaning in himself. And he comes to the tomb. Why is he groaning? He's groaning because... Why is it so hard for us to to understand? Why do we cling so tightly to the wrong things? Why are we continuously and chronically captivated by the wrong motivations? Why do we always miss the big picture? Why can't we see What Jesus is trying to get us to see. So Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha, this sister of him who was dead, said to him, Well, Lord, look, this didn't just happen. Like, he didn't just die. It's not like you can just walk over there and put your your hand on his warm chest and his heart's going to start beating again. I mean, this thing is is over. He already stinks. It's been four days. He's been dead. He's decaying. Like, it's too late for all that. And Jesus said, did I not say? See, Jesus Back to the purpose again. He's groaning. And he's back to the purpose again. Didn't I tell you? That if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Didn't I tell you? There's purpose in all this. This is, this is about something. So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted, lifted up his eyes. And then notice what he does. He says, Father, he prays, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. And because of the people who are standing by, I said this. Jesus prays to the Father this prayer for the benefit of all those that are listening. Because he's, he's, it's, this all has a point. This all has a purpose. All this pain is about this purpose. And he does this for them that they may, there's your word again, believe that you've sent me. That they would believe that. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Come forth. And who, he who had died, you know the story, came out bound hand and foot, grave clothes. His face was wrapped in cloth and Jesus said to loose him and let him go. Verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things that Jesus did. There it is. Believed. 
believed. Would God do all this? Would God, would God do all of this for belief? Would God go to the, what lengths will he go to for the testing of our faith? That in our lives there'll be produced patience, strength. Wow, what? Is it this important to God? Listen, I'm not suggesting that God hurts us on purpose just to watch us squirm in agony. That's, that's not what this is about. But on the contrary, this is about a God who, he doesn't hurt us. The world that we live in hurts us. And he does all that he does because it breaks his heart to see the world continually hurting us and everyone else in it. He sees that things are breaking down in the world around us. He watches as we hurt each other. He's not oblivious to the fact that there's pain everywhere. That no matter where we go or what we do, we can't escape the constant cycle of sickness, poverty, and death. You see, I've said this over and over since this whole coronavirus thing has started. That even before I even knew what the coronavirus was, I was saying, prompted by the Spirit of God, that we're in exile and we're not going back to Jerusalem. And even if we go, it's not going to be the same. Things are going to be different. And the reason things are going to be different is because this is going somewhere. Don't you understand? You see, the, the, this is what frustrates me. This desire within so many people for things to just get back to normal. Think about what you're saying. You want life to get back to normal. So in saying that, that that's, that's saying that all of this has been for nothing. That we were going along and then this terrible thing happened and people died and people were lived in fear and we were all dispersed and, and all of this crazy stuff happened and then it just goes right back to normal. So all of this happened for nothing? That's not the way this works. Listen, that's not God's plan. It's not his purpose. It's never been. It's never going back to how it was. Never. Because there's a purpose in this pain. It's for something. It's taking us somewhere. And I can hear you. I can hear you saying. How can I love a God who creates things that hurts me? How can I love a God who 
uses things with no, that don't make any sense to me. That I don't understand. I can, I can, I can hear so many hearts posturing to God and saying, God, if, if you want me to be like Mary and Martha, then I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. If that's the way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow strong, if that's going to create belief in me, if you're that committed to testing my faith, then, then I'm out. And here's the thing. If you've never been in, then you can stay out. And God's not going to force you. But if you belong to Him, then this morning would be a great time for you to reckon in your heart who He is, what He's doing, and why He does the things that He does. Listen, God, God doesn't hurt you. Sin hurts you. God is the one who is doing all the things that he's doing to rescue you and to rescue people. You, you know what God's purpose is in the coronavirus? It's redemptive. How do I know that? Because I know God and I know what the Bible teaches and I know that when we're going through struggle, it's redemptive and that God is using, He's working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That God wants to grow our faith and He wants to use us to be an example, to shine our light to people who don't know Him, that they might come to know Him. That that's what all of this is about. Listen, it, He's the one working to rescue us. And we've got to stop being so captivated by the things that don't make sense to us or that we don't understand or that we don't like when God won't do what we want Him to do. Listen, God doesn't adjust to us. We adjust to Him. So how can we resolve this purpose in our pain this morning? This promise in the process. Because this is what I want you to do. I want you to, to walk away from this moment. And I want you to say, God, I want that promise. Thank you for that promise. Thank you that, that I can count my struggles and my trials joy. Because you're testing my faith to build strength in me, patience and steadfastness, so that I would I grow in maturity, so that I'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That you're so committed to that that there's going to be times that that I hurt inexplicably, and that I suffer and that I don't understand, and that there's there's places in my heart that want to reject that and say, God, I don't want that. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, our light affliction. You think Paul's affliction was light? No. 
But look at what he says. It's light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight in glory. Would God be going through everything that he's gone through to rescue us? Would he have paid the price that he's paid to rescue us? If he wasn't committed to something bigger than what we oftentimes understand or see? You know why? You know why we fight against God when we when we suffer and when we hurt? You know why we disbelieve God because of the injustices and the suffering around us in the world? Do you know why we struggle? To count it all joy when we suffer. Because we don't know what he knows. I believe the reason Jesus was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, the reason why he was groaning in his spirit, is because he's looking around and he's thinking, how, how are you missing this? How are you missing this? Is it, is it really? Is life really about trying to stay safe? Is that what it's really about? Is it really about trying to lengthen our days? Is it really about Clinging to the things of this world. Isn't it true that we, we profess belief in a God? We, we study His Bible. We come to church. We sing songs about Him. We, we give of our resources and our time to this God. But yet, We're devastated when a brother or sister is taken out of this life. Even when we have complete assurance of where they are. And with our head, we would say, oh, it's such a better place. And oh, there's no more suffering. And oh, there... But in our heart, we wish they were still here with us. See, it's the same struggle in my heart. But what God wants us to to know is that there's something way bigger. The purpose in our pain, all of these questions would go away. If we just got one glimpse of eternity. One glimpse of hell. Just one glimpse. And all our questions about God's purposes would disappear.
You know what? One glimpse of hell. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus would go, oh, it was 100% worth it. It totally makes sense to me. I, I now understand why you would wait two days. One millisecond of what an eternity separated from God is like would explain how God uses any means necessary to bring people to an opportunity to believe, to, to do anything he possibly can to try to get them to understand that if you depart from this world apart from him, it is going to be horror unimaginable for eternity. Eternity. And that trumps any comfort in this life. It trumps any understanding in this life. It trumps any explanation for me and you in this life. It trumps all of it. Everything makes sense in light of eternity. No one in hell is saying to themselves, well, this isn't that bad. Or, it didn't make sense to me. Or I didn't have an opportunity. Or I didn't see. Listen to me. No. In eternity, you'll realize that everything God has done makes absolute perfect sense. And it is all the more the reason why you and I know that God is a good and gracious God. Because he will stop at nothing. Nothing. So listen. If you this morning would say, well, I don't believe in God because I'm not going to submit to a God who would allow these terrible things to happen. You're making a foolish, foolish mistake. These terrible things are a foretaste of the terrible, horrific things that will go for all of eternity. He's using everything to try to get you to believe. It's belief. It's the refining of your faith. It said, listen to me. He wasn't, he wasn't willing to leave Martha. He wasn't going to let Martha live her life content that God exists and that God is all-powerful. He wasn't content to let her die without saving knowledge of him as the Lord and Savior, the one and only Messiah who came. So he was willing to let his dear friend perish and to see her heart broken and devastated so that she could believe, so that her sister could believe, so that the people around them could believe because he's a good God. He's a good God. And the whole time they're waving their finger and saying, you see, he loved Lazarus. Why didn't he do something? He healed the blind. He did this. Why didn't he do that? The whole time the finger's wagging. The true purpose 
is God showing how much he loves all of us. He loves you. So brother and sister, there's purpose in whatever pain you're in this morning, whatever struggle you're in this morning. There's a promise in this process and there's a purpose in this pain. And it's, it's not meaningless. It's not going back to the way it used to be. And so like James, I come to you and say, in this time of dispersion, in this time when, when we're not able to be together, I have confidence in your doctrinal foundation. My concern for you is that you'll let this, this current suffering this current struggle distract you or derail you from your spiritual growth. Embrace the promise. God wants to make us stronger because he wants to use us greater. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, then right now is the time to do that. You don't need to be in a church. You don't need a pastor. You just need you Get on your knees before God. Call out to Him. Confess to Him that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And He'll save you. He'll save you. He loves you. He slaughtered His Son to be able to do that. Let's embrace what God has for us in this suffering. And as we study through this book, God's going to show us so many things. And I didn't just decide we were going to go through James last week. I mean, it was six weeks ago that all of this came about. I never could have dreamed we'd be in this moment in this text. But again, it's just the goodness of God. So let's, let's just embrace what God said to us and receive it this morning with gladness and joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for letting us be together in this time in the way in which we can, Lord. And God, our, you know our desire is to be together face to face. But even when that happens, Lord, we're already being prepared to know that things are going to be different. The world's not going back to the way it was. And Lord, there's going to be new opportunities, but there's going to be new challenges. And as I've prayed about this, I've thought to myself about all the ways that this may work out. I don't know, but I, I wonder. I wonder if, Lord, in the time to come, if the world will continue out of fear of infection, that the world will continue to practice social distancing. And so in, in normal ways of life, people will just have a bigger gap between each other. But they'll see that there's some people that don't do that. They'll notice these peculiar Christians who love each other and are not afraid to be together and who live differently, aren't driven by fear, and who suffer in many of the same ways, even in more severe ways, and yet remain humble and steadfast and faithful. And they'll ask, from where?
did you get this strength? And we'll be able to point them to you. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus and for all that you're doing in us to prepare us that we might make the most of this time for your glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you. If you need.